Hi, I'm Andrew Sheps, and welcome back to Andrew Talks to Awesome People, brought to you by Pure Mix. This is episode six, and it is my conversation with Al Schmidt. He is definitely on the Mount Rushmore of recording engineers, and he may possibly be the Mount Rushmore of recording engineers. The conversation is not long enough to cover everything he's done, but I don't think there's enough time left in the universe to do all that. But we do cover everything from the beginning of his career with Count Basie, which is an incredible story, all the way through Bill Evans, Jefferson Airplane, Moon River from Breakfast at Tiffany's, all the way up through his recent work with Bob Dylan. He's an incredible person. He's had an incredible career, and he's a great storyteller, too. So please enjoy. Cool. Well, everybody, we're here for another uh, Pure Mix stay-at-home live stream. And uh, today is a, an absolute honor to have both Andrew Sheps and Al Schmidt on the stream. So, guys, I'm going to turn it over to you. Have a great show. Really looking forward to this. So thanks, Mark. We'll see you a bit yeah, later on. See you in a bit. Thanks. Yeah, but for now, it's only people only people with the initials AS allowed in here. That's it. That's right. <laughs> uh, Al you. Schmidt, thank you so much for, for doing this. Um, it, it's been a great thing to be doing just to be able to talk to people and not be talking about the nuts and bolts, but much more about kind of the people and what you think. And for most people, I've been just sort of recapping the career because that's a great way to move through and you kind of cover everything that happens. But if we did that with you, we'd be here for the next like year and a half. <laughs> so I thought uh, we'd just kind of skip around, but um, sure. I'm, look, you've got, you got a book out, you've done everything on the planet. So if people want some background, they can like open up another browser window and read Wikipedia and stuff like that. But I definitely want to touch on a couple of things just in your sort of biography in the early days, how you got started, if that's cool. We can go sure. in the Wayback Machine. Absolutely. Well, because I know you started at your um, at your uncle's studio. You were visiting him. But you were visiting him from like a really young age, right? I mean, yeah. not you weren't there to work. No, no, no. My dad would bring me over there when I was like seven, and I would watch what they were doing. And then when I was eight years old, uh, my mom let me go over there on the weekend and I would stay with my uncle uh, at his apartment. He was my father's brother, but he was also my godfather. And uh, so I, I would go get on the subway Saturday morning, go over to his studio, and then I'd spend the weekend. And then on Sunday, he would get me back on the subway and I'd go home. And uh, so I would watch, I would go there and sit in the studio and help him set up chairs and watch him record. And then I got to meet everybody, um, you know, and Orson Welles would come by, Bing Crosby, the Andrews sisters. Um, Les Paul was his best friend in the world. So he was Uncle Les to me. And, uh, and he would always mess my hair up and it always pissed me off. And he would do that <laughs> to me later on in life. You know, he'd just walk over by me and say, hey, how am I and mess my hair up? So uh, <laughs> anyway, it was it was a fun time for me. Um, you know, we were really poor and my uncle was doing really well. And uh, so he would take me to Madison Square Garden. I would see the fights. I would see the hockey games. He would take me to great restaurants and all the things I, I could never do with my parents because we couldn't afford it. Um so that was it. And, and I, I did that until I was about 
12 years old or so to almost 12, 13. And then I kind of got mixed up in a gang uh, and started getting in trouble and uh, and wound up, you know, not, it didn't look like I was going to have much of a future at that point. So on my 17th birthday, uh, my parents uh, let me, uh, they signed it that I could enlist in the Navy. So I went in the Navy just to get away from uh, from the guys I was with because half of them were going to jail and there was all kinds of, you know, they were doing all kinds of wrong things. And, that's pretty uh, self-aware for a, that's pretty self-aware for a 17 year old. I mean, did yeah, you realize yeah, that you needed to do it or did your parents kind of talk you into it? No, no, I realized I needed to do it or I was going to go away. And I didn't, I, you know, I heard all these stories about reform school and all that. And I didn't want any part of that. So, uh, so I went to the Navy and I, I got, I was really blessed because I had a fairly good IQ. And uh, so they sent me to school in Washington, DC, um, cryptology school, learning how to decode. And, um, and I spent almost a year uh, doing that just in the school. And, uh, and then I worked at the uh, Naval Observatory um, and we would be intercepting um, Russian weather reports and, uh, and then, you know, on a, a big um, machine at, uh, and we had the, uh, the uppercase was uh, uh, the English alphabet and the lowercase was the Russian alphabet. So it was, it was really interesting and, and wow. got me really interested in that kind of stuff. Yeah, it was great. So I got when I got out of the Navy, after two and a half years, I was able to get out. And I was home and I was going to go to college. And my uncle called me and said, uh, a friend of his had a great studio in New York and uh, they were looking for an apprentice and would I be interested? And I said, absolutely. So well, I went over and interviewed for the job and I knew I was going to get it because the guy that owned the studio was one of my uncle's best friends. So uh, anyway, I got the job Monday morning, um, time for me to go to work. I get there at nine o'clock and my boss takes me in and introduce me to the other two guys that are working there. And one was uh, um, a German engineer who wore a monocle, believe it or not. And uh, yeah, he was a really funny guy. And um, his name was Otto, uh, I can't think of his last name. No, that was Her Herbert Otto. And then, um, and the other guy was uh, Tom Dow. And uh, Tommy and I just instantly hit it off. Um, we became friends and I, I was told to follow him around and do whatever he asked me to do. And that's what I did. And so, that was the basis of my, uh, the foundation of my learning, uh, learning what mics to use where and, and, uh, and how to use microphones and how to set up a studio and so forth. And back then we only had eight inputs on the board, so we could only use eight microphones. So, uh, you know, it wasn't like uh, today where you can, yeah. you know, you'll have 50 mics out there. Well, so, so anyway, that was were, basically the start. So when you were going to your uncle's studio, though, I mean, obviously you started off by just going to visit your uncle, but did you kind of get the bug about it then, or did you not realize till after you came back from being in the Navy that it was actually something you'd want to do? Well, I, I knew the thing that, that impressed me the most was my uncle 
the way he handled people, um, uh, the way he dressed, he dressed real nice, you know, always dressed nice with a nice jacket and suit and a shirt and tie and so forth. So I was always impressed by him, you know, uh, and I was, I, you know, he was just like my idol at the time, you know, I wanted to be just like him. He always right. had a lot of money, you know, he, he always carried a lot of water bills with him. Like these would be for credit card days. And um, so, yeah, I, you know, it was something when I, I know when I was little, I kept saying, when I grow up, I want to be like him, you know? Right. And, uh, and he had me do things, you know, I'd pick up chip off the lathe as they were cutting and they had like a mink brush. It's before they had, uh, you know, before they had suction and could right. suck off the chip. And um, so, you know, I did that and put it in a metal can because it was highly flammable. And in back days, the base was glass because it was during the war. And um, and they uh, they took all the aluminum for, for the war front. Effort. So all everything was glass based with acetate covering. And, you know, all you had to do was just tap it the wrong way and it would break. So, wow. and when it broke, it was gone. So that he taught me things like, you have to treat this like you're a Swiss watchmaker and you're, this is a Swiss watch and you have to be really careful and, uh, and take good care of everything. And it'll take good care of you if you do that. And that always stuck with me. I thought that was That's amazing. some great advice. Well, because I think people sort of my age walking, got to see a studio. I mean, I know for me, I saw my first studio and it was it was probably a Soundcraft board or something like that, but it was a, at least a 32 input board. And so you walk into this room with the gear and that kind of makes you go, wow, because I was a geek. I wanted to know how to run all the stuff. Right. but. I mean, walking into your uncle's studio wasn't really that. I mean, the control room obviously is still full of gear, but not in the same way, right? I mean, it's. Oh, it's no, no. I think at that point, you, have to treat you know, a lot of the stuff was one microphone, and he would move the musicians around, made them all take their shoes off so you wouldn't hear their foot tapping. And uh, and that was it. And then it went to a lathe. So um, it was him. And the lathe, that was a really small room. And I remember sitting back out of the way. So I didn't get it when he moved over to the lathe. So he didn't trip over me. Anyway, so yeah, it was it was an exciting time for me. And, and you know, to, to be able to talk to people uh, that were big stars back then uh, that would come by and pick up transcriptions uh, my uncle did a lot of what they called, when there was a radio show, he would record it, and then the artist would come by and pick up the the acetate so they could play it at home and and see how they did on the show. Right. Uh, so that was great, and I, I got to meet everybody. Um, it was just, you know, I was a stargazer in a sense. That's amazing. Yeah, um, can, it was, can I ask you something just about about Les Paul? I mean, I know he used to mess up your hair, but I mean, obviously, <laughs> he has a huge role in multi-track recording, overdubbing, just the the evolution of recording at that point. And um, Chris Lord Algy was telling a story that he was like mowing lawns 
and he was mowing Les's lawn and Les said, hey, you you like this recording stuff and like had him come into the garage and showed him the setup and that kind of really set Chris <laughs> down the path of realizing. Wow, oh, that's it. cool. I didn't and, know that. Yeah, and I don't, you know, I don't know details and who knows, it was late, yeah. people were drinking, but that's the story I heard. But I'm wondering, other than just messing your hair up, once you were actually recording, did you kind of go back to Les and was he mentor in that way or is it more just he was sort of an elder when stage? i got into the business you know and i would see less later on as you know i was in my 20s and so forth and we would always chat and he would always ask me how's your uncle and we'd get back and chat back and forth all the time and, and less and i were friends until the day he died uh, you know every time i'd see him anywhere or be at an event we would always sit down and chat uh, as a matter of fact i was getting an award one one uh, tech award and uh and i had my wife with me and and les and tommy dowd or whatever at the table and i introduced my wife to les and i said les this is my wife um lisa and uh uh you know more than introduce you guys and he looked at lisa and he said god you are so much prettier than the woman he was with last night <laughs> So those, that was the kind of guy. It was still messing your hair up. He was, yeah, <laughs> messing my hair up and messing. You know, he, I mean, he was just a curmudgeon, but but the, the most lovable guy I ever met. And I would run into him at Capitol, you know, a few years before he died. And, uh, and we'd just hang out in the hall there and chat and talk about my uncle. He and my uncle designed a lot of things together. And he asked me at some point if I knew where all that stuff was that they had been working on. And I said, I, I had no idea that his, his I'm sure his ex-wife must have had it. And uh, they tried to track her down, but I don't think they were ever able to and find out and find the, the things they were working on. I have right. no idea what they were and he never explained it to me. <laughs> so, so then Tom Dowd was your first like real mentor he was, he, listen, where I am today, uh, Tom is, uh, was a big part of that. The, and so for, I, for people watching this who don't know, do you want to just give a couple of albums people should go check out that he did? Or Oh, my God. I mean, there's so well, many. Well, almost anything on Atlantic, all those great Atlantic records. Um, you know, I mean, God, just, just google tom dow that's yeah, the best so the way 50, to do it anything on atlantic and, and in the, the 50s basically absolutely right? so tom and i were together at apex for about a year and a half i think maybe two years and the place went broke the the owner was an alcoholic and uh anyway it went broke and tommy tom went to um a studio called fulton recording and I went to a place called NOLA Recording. And it was a, a recording studio and a rehearsal hall. And a year after I was there, I got a call from Tom saying that they had, there was an opening at, at Fulton and um, he recommended me. So I went over and I got the job and God, it was a lot more money than I was making it, <clears throat> excuse me, making it NOLA. So, uh, Obviously, I took the job and I was happy and 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 I was back with uh, Tom and another great engineer, uh, Bob Doherty, who was doing all the big orchestra dates there because it was a big room. And uh, and it was much like Abbey Road, too, 
the control room was upstairs and you had to walk downstairs to get into the studio, you know, to get to the studio. So it was great. And that was, uh, Tommy and I built our first live chamber. We took a room and shellacked it about nine times and made a live chamber out of it. And uh, that was it. We are still rotary faders. And right. uh, yeah, and uh, we had about, I think then we must have had, I don't know, maybe 12 inputs on the board. And of course, everything was on tape. Uh, before that, let me go back just to yeah, yeah. with Tommy and I, because we didn't have a tape machine. Everything was done on acetate. We had two Presto lathes, and to adjust the line per inch, you had to change the feed screw. Right. So we had from we had feed screws that went from 88, 96, 112, 134, so forth. So depending on what we were doing and how long it was, that's the feed screw we used. Wow, and, no adjustment uh, at all in real time. Yeah. Yeah. No, wow. it was it was amazing. And so th these were things that nobody will ever get a chance to do ever again. So uh I, you know, I'm the Tommy Tommy's gone now, so I'm the last of the Mohegans. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's amazing stuff because I mean you know people think about cutting direct to disc as like that's super old school but you've got computers with look ahead to do the pitch now or you were able to adjust it manually but to be on a cutting lathe where you couldn't adjust it at all and if they slowed down you weren't going to make it fit. <laughs> that's like, right, that's and that happened. And if yeah. you if you cut too loud when you were on a high pitch, it was going to skip. Right. I mean that's crazy. And we didn't have any compressors. And we had one equalizer, a cinema equalizer. But the problem with it was, if you put it in, it equalized everything. You right. couldn't just equalize the bass or, or the vocal. So, so we never used it. So that's <laughs> how I make records today. I, I make records without EQing, very little compression. Um, and that was it. So, you know, I t Tommy, taught me how to use microphones and where to put them and how to listen and and so forth. He taught me so many things, how to become friendly with the musicians and right. to make sure that that was good because, you know, you don't want, if you, the musicians are on your side, you're in good shape. Yeah. And you don't want some pissed off musician. Well, uh, I mean, and so, that goes, that goes to your very first session at Apex as the engineer, which, I mean, it's such an amazing story. I suppose you should tell a, a version of it if you oh, want. Oh, well, <laughs> I was working there about three months and uh, they said, okay, Al, you, you can come in on Saturdays now and do these little demo dates. That's all they ever had on Saturday. And, uh, and it would be a guy come in and play piano and sing happy birthday to his daughter. And I would cut the acetate and give it to him. He gave me $15 and that was it. And then I had a guy who uh, wrote a song and he came in and played guitar, sang the song, and I recorded that and gave it to him. So I had three people that day. And the, the last guy was Mercer, Mr. Mercer I'm waiting for. So I, I always stood by the elevator. We were on the second floor and I wanted to, to greet the client when they came. So the elevator doors open up and all these musicians start coming out. And they said, you know, where's the studio? And I said, well, the studio's right there. Well, what's this? Uh, 
Mercer Records. We're here uh, with the Duke Ellington Orchestra, the Duke Ellington Band. I said, oh, no, no, this is a mistake. You're in the wrong place. No, no. So I got really frightened. I tried to call Tommy, couldn't reach him. I tried to call my boss, couldn't reach him. So I remember Tommy had bought me a notebook and it had me do diagrams of all his setups and what mics he used where. And of course, we only had eight inputs. So um, uh, it was pretty cool uh, because it was small and so forth. So I, I didn't know. I mean, these were the, the guys that were coming out of the elevator were my idols. I mean, it was like Babe Ruth and Joe DiMaggio coming out. These were, you know, the greatest musicians. And uh, so I, I I didn't know what to do. Um, and the guys go in the studio and I, I get my notebook out and I see the, how Tommy had set, set up something and, and I start putting the mics up. <clears throat> and uh, Duke Ellington walks in, uh, Mercer's dad, and uh, and I kept saying to Mr. Ellington, this is a huge mistake. I'm I'm not qualified to do this. I mean, I'm only allowed to do little things. <laughs> and he <laughs> he kind of laughed a little bit, and and uh, he said, well, uh, God, the musicians look like they're getting set out there. They're sitting down and tuning up, and uh, the setup looks good. I said, well, I know, but I've never done anything like this. And he, he kept patting me on the on the leg, and he kept saying, don't worry, son, we're going to get through this. And he had this smile, and, and he was just so kind to me. And I think he probably figured I mean, any moment I was going to faint or <laughs> or something, and, and they'd never get anything. So so he, he was just really kind. And we did four songs in three hours with the band. And Billy Strayhorn on piano, and God, you know all the all my idol, uh, you know, and and this I, was, was full just, big band, huh? This full was full big band, big band. yeah. yeah. So, four trumpets, four trombones, five saxes, and rhythm, and Freddie Green on guitar, nice. you know, all fucking yeah. <laughs> I mean, and these are guys I was buying records, you know, yeah. these were my idols, and uh, to be in the studio with them, and, and when it was over, it was. He said, thank you. And that was the end of it. And I, I was like, oh my God, I did this. <laughs> and then about three weeks later, I'm doing the same thing on a Saturday. And I get a call from Herb Abramson, who was one of the owners of Atlantic Records, he and Armand. And uh, he said, is the studio available today? Oh, I said, yeah, my last thing is at two o'clock. He said, okay, I'm coming over. I'm bringing a group over. So he brought the Clovers over. And uh, and we recorded two songs, uh, "Don't You Know I Love You" and and Skylark, and uh, and "Don't You Know I Love You" became a huge hit, single hit. It was a race record in those days. They called them, yeah. you know, there was no rock and roll. It was race record, and uh, and then so I had under my belt already. I had the big band thing with him, and now I had a hit record. And now people were starting to ask for me. And, uh, and that was a thrill. You know, I was still 20, you know, and, and a kid. Yeah. Amazing. A flash so, in the And pan. it was amazing times <laughs> back then. I was working with a guy by the name of Bobby Shedd who had a label called Sitting In. And we would record uh, Lightning Hopkins and all great, great blues artists. 
But we would cut an acetate and get in his car. We drive up to Harlem. Willie and Ray were the top disc jockeys of their time up there. We'd give him the acetate. And I don't know how much money uh, Bob gave them or whatever, you know, to pay off or whatever. But we'd get in the car and start to drive back to the studio. And we'd hear the song that we just cut on the air. And so we could, you know, yeah, it was an amazing thing. So That's incredible. Yeah. So, yeah, there's things like that that never will ever happen again. No, but so you talk about that these guys are your heroes. So growing up, what was what was the music that you just loved growing up? Oh, I was a big band. The first record I ever bought was Jimmy Lunsford, big band record yeah. called White Heat and Jazznocracy. And then Woody Herman was one of my all-time favorites. Um, you know, I, I, I was in love with Sinatra. My God, he was... He was the, the greatest thing that ever walked. That I used to play hooky from school and go over to the Paramount Theater and catch him with the Tommy Dorsey band. You know, and it was those are the records I left. And then I became a big bebopper, and uh, right. and then I got to work with Charlie Parker and, and all the greatest great beboppers around and artists and jazz and uh, you know, I mean, I was living the dream. I, I can't I can't let you just skip over the fact that you worked with Charlie Parker. So w what was that? Oh, it was amazing. I did a bunch of things with him. My uncle did a few things with him when I was younger. And then I did some stuff at, at Apex with him. Um, you know, and, and it was all those great bebop guys of the, of the time, you know. Um, yeah, they would all come in and Tiny Khan, I don't know if you know Tiny Khan. He yeah. passed away when he was 30, but he was a big heavy set guy. And I was recording the Tiny Khan trio and it was Tiny and the bass player and the, and uh, he played drums, Tiny, and uh, and the keyboard, uh, piano. And uh, so I set up three mics, one mic on the drums, one mic on the piano, and one mic on the bass. And and uh, Sandy said to me, hey, kid, put a mic on the bass drum. I said, oh, no, 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 we don't do that. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a boom. Try it. He said, just try it. If you don't like it, take it out. So I, it was a Western Electric 639, I think, or, a, or it, was, it might have been a 44 RCA ribbon. And I stuck it on the, uh, on the bass drum. And then when I went in, I, I got, you know, the overhead sound and the bass, uh, upright bass and the drums, got all that. And then slowly I added a little of the uh, kick drum in. Now we're talking 1950. And uh, I couldn't believe the difference it made. I mean, how much more oomph we got from the drums. And uh, so when I played back the acetate at that time, he, he said, he hit me with his elbows. See, kids, see, it makes a difference. And I said, wow. And I, I've, I've been using it ever since. You know? That's amazing. Like, yeah. I, mean, I wonder, like, who, because obviously he'd seen it done or he got someone to do it or something before. But evidently, I mean, yeah. As you say, that was not done. That was not no. a thing. No, that was, it was great. So, really amazing. So, um, I don't even know, like, there's no order to do these things in, but we can... I know. <laughs> so, 
Well, while we're talking about the jack, let's just skip around all over the place. So, because right. I asked you, and Mark will post these later on to give me some playlists, and I had to choose some songs. We'll talk about the playlists specifically in a little bit. But one of your inspiration albums was a Bill Evans record. But then you've also worked with Bill Evans. And yes. So while we're talking about jazz, let's talk about Bill Evans, because holy crap, it's Bill Evans. Yeah. Well, you know, the Bill Evans with Symphony Orchestra was just, <clears throat> excuse me, such a classic record. And, um, you know, I mean, it influenced me and influenced Tommy, La Puma, um, you know, so much. Then we had the opportunity to do a trio record with Bill Evans, Tommy producing, and uh, and we did it at, uh, at Capitol. And uh, we had three pianos there. We had a, a Steinway, a Yamaha, and a Bosendorf. And so we tried all the pianos, you know, and and, uh, and Bill, we liked the sound, believe it or not, of the Yamaha. It just sounded right for it. So Bill said, give me an hour and let me mess with this so I can see how the keys are working and everything else. And so we took off. Helen Keene, I think, was his manager at the time, and she was also co-producing. So the three of us took off and left him alone in the studio. And uh, we came back about an hour later, and he had figured everything out. And we did, uh, you know, we did that album, and uh, you must believe in Spring, and still one of my all-time favorite records. And working with Bill was just, you know. It's it's like working with Frank Sinatra. It's, you know, it's like these are your idols, people you you know you you never dreamed you'd ever meet when you were listening to the, and now here you are with them and chatting and talking and and yeah, uh, yeah it's just you know it's, it's just amazing. Uh, and I can remember going home from the studio and I would always stop by the bar, the neighborhood bar, and all my friends would be hanging out there. And I would be telling them stories about all the musicians that I've been working with. And, and we were all beboppers and jazz people, you know, and they were all envious and wanting to come by to watch and, and stuff. <laughs> and, yeah, it was quite a thrill. That's an, it's just, oh, God, I mean, that's a beautiful sounding record too, the Bill Evans record. That oh, was, thank you. Thank you. Just, I, I got to say, yeah. I mean, again, we'll come back to the playlist, but going through the inspiration playlist, I mean, it's a lot of records I know, but I had to listen through because I had to pick one track to put on the playlist and things. And there are a lot of amazing records, I mean, including obviously Pet Sounds, things like that, that just sound incredible. But putting together the playlist of the stuff that you did, every single one of those records just sounds absolutely stunning you're just in the room but the, it's not the same room you're in the the room you're supposed to be in for each record and it's a real it's magic like there's more reverb on things than i would expect on a couple of those records but it works so well like some of the the funkier algero stuff or like it's just it's incredible yeah. the space and the as soon as you oh. hear the first note you kind of know where you're living and then there it is and it's all oh just thank there. you that's very kind. Oh. So, all right, we'll, we're going to jump around all over the place. Yeah, I all right. I ask you about, because I know you did some work um, with Elmer Bernstein on some film stuff, right? And also yeah. Henry Mancini. 
But then the only like really straight ahead classical thing I could find was the Yasha Heifetz trio. Yeah. And I don't even I couldn't even find like which recording that was. So I'm not sure. I, but that was I'm that was well, you just just I'd like to hear a little bit about that because it's it seems like a little bit of an anomaly. But did you do because you recorded so many orchestras, but you didn't do very many just classical records. And I'm just curious, like, did you want to or was it or did you? And no, I just no, no. You know, I or... was a staff. I was a staff um, engineer at RCA. And John Norman was another engineer there, an English guy. And we were doing mostly all the work. Um, and uh, and you know you did what what you were assigned, um, and you know I would do the, the, the Yasha Eifers trio one day, and the next day I'd be used doing Bobby Bear country, maybe or Yankovic uh, polka music. You know, I mean, I I did everything, every kind of music you could think of, gypsy music, you name it, and whatever it was, and we would do at least three sessions a day we'd go nine to 12 and then there'd be another two to five and then it would be the eight to 11 and that would be you know mancini and and the, those people so so i got to even music i hated which i didn't like like polka music i'm not a polka fan you know, or anything else but i made up my mind i would get the best accordion sound they ever heard and that's how i went and and worked on those records so even though i i would i tune the music out and just really kind of <laughs> get the sounds in that i wanted and and everything and of course you know everybody was happy and it, it seemed to work out okay but <laughs> the fact that i was able to do billy Eckstein and billy may uh you know uh, any every major artist that would come by RCA, you know, I wound up recording. And um, I got to do all kinds of music for with every, some of the musicians that were my idols. Um, I was blessed. I mean, that was the best thing that ever happened to me was going to RCA and, and having that opportunity. It's amazing because it, it's a, I mean, I suppose RCA obviously was getting the big acts in there because RCA was big at the time. Right. right. But like now, there's really not the same. I mean, there are staff engineers at the larger studios, but it's not the same thing at no. all. Everybody yeah, who comes in to be the engineer has been hired to work on that project. Right. Maybe they have a say in the studio. Maybe they don't. Even if you're staffed somewhere, you might go somewhere else to make the record. But that's not the way it worked. I mean, and I, I when I was reading up, um, apparently your uncle's studio was the first independent studio on the East Coast, period. Yeah. The first one not first tied one. to a label. They did the first ever record of Sonata recording. Uh, yeah, there's a, you know, if you read... Uh, some of the Sonato books, you'll see that he came over from Jersey with this band that my uncle was recording. And he was just kind of sitting around watching. And they had finished a little early with what they did. And and then Frank wondered, wondered if he could sing a song with the band. And, and my uncle recorded it. It was the first, and that's in the book. Not in wow. my book, but in their book. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. So, okay. So let's, we'll jump around some more. Sure. So then obviously you then were not staff engineer for ever places. And so you jumped into production as well. 
And you produced, is it four Jefferson Airplane records in three years or something like that? It's yeah. like, it was quick. And I'm wondering, first of all, going from what seemed as though it was more of a traditional pop and what you're talking about with the polka, just a really varied discography. How do you then, obviously I'm skipping over a million things, which you can fill us in on, but how did you end up producing a band like Jefferson Airplane and obviously having that kind of relationship where it wasn't just, a, oh, he was the engineer there, we'll go and do a record with him. I mean, four in a row in that period of time, that's a serious relationship going yeah. on too. Well, what happened was um, I was still a stamp producer at RCA and I was doing, oh my God, um, the artist, uh, Hugo Montenegro, um, Sam Cooke, um, Gail Garnett. Um, I, I had like 12 artists, Eddie Fisher. So I was doing, so the Jefferson Airplane had just did Surrealistic Pillow, which was a huge hit. Evidently, they hated the way the record sounded. They thought it had too much echo and everything, and they didn't want to work with the people that did that record again. So being a stamp producer, they threw me in, and the Jefferson Airplane said, okay. And that was after Bathing at Baxter's. And um, I started on that. That that album took quite a while to make uh, because um, <coughs> it was, there were a lot of drugs, obviously, acid uh, and you name it, nitrous oxide tank. You know, it was just insane. And uh, so I would was recording them when we, I was doing Eddie Fisher from two to five, overdubbing him vocals. And then at eight o'clock, I would do the airplane. I would go up at five o'clock after I finished with Eddie, go up to my office and I'd meditate for an hour. I was doing transcendental meditation at the time. And I would meditate and, and then I would go down and do the airplane. Well, it was, we'd, we'd get some work done from eight to 11, but at 11 o'clock, people started showing up, you know? Right. Uh, David Crosby would show up, uh, uh, Joni Mitchell would bring, uh, and, and just everybody would come by and hang out. And it became just a, like a control room full of people getting high and having a party. And we'd be there till two, three in the morning. And then finally I'd get rid of everybody. I'd go home, get a few hours sleep, come back. Because I, as I said, I had 11 artists that I was working on. I had to, I had to do uh, budgets. I had to find arrangers. I had to look for songs. Because in those days, not everybody wrote their own songs. Yeah. You know, and there were a lot of publishers who'd bring their, you know, bring their stuff by and play me. So, hey, I got this record I think would be good for Eddie for sure. But this would be good for the women folk and that kind of stuff. Uh, so I was really getting worn out. And I called my boss on the phone in New York, the head of A&R, and I said, uh, hey, you got to get somebody to do Eddie Fisher in the afternoon. I can't do the airplane at night and go on all the way in the morning like that and then come in and, and do all this other stuff. And his line to me was, gee, I'll truck drivers do it. And I said, really? Truck drivers? I said, well, get yourself a couple of truck drivers. I quit. And I... <laughs> 
I resigned. I put in my two-week resignation the next morning, went out, and then went home. And I was sitting home doing nothing. I said, what the hell did I do? You know, <laughs> I just quit a job and, and now I got nothing. And I, I two weeks I was home, I get a call from the manager of the Jefferson Airplane saying, RCA, there was nobody there they wanted to work with. RCA said, well, get somebody and we'll give them points and, and, uh, and a certain amount of money. So would I be interested? I said, absolutely. So now I'm back to work. And, uh, and I'll tell you a little, when I was working as a staff producer, my salary was 17,500 a year. And you can make a $5,000 bonus every year, uh, depending on how your records sold. And I, I did that every year. So I was making 22,500. My first royalty check, from the Jefferson Airplane was 50 grand working on <laughs> one album. And I thought, holy, now I know I did the right thing, yeah. you know, because <laughs> now, you know, and and then from there, I, I started doing all the airplane stuff. And then they, they started a label called Grunt Records. And I started producing uh, their artists um, for them. And then I started getting calls to do, you know, other people and and uh, to produce other acts. And it was kind of, it was great. And so Tommy LaPuma was my dearest friend at that time. And we met, he used to bring me songs when he was a music publisher. And we just became really good friends. And, uh, and one day he said, uh, hey, Al, uh, I'm doing this album and uh, the engineer, has to go, the engineer was Bruce Bartnick, and he has to leave because he had a start date with the doors, and he had a start on that day, and he has to go, and I need to finish this record. And uh, he said, you used to engineer? Said, I said, oh yeah, Tommy, but I haven't done any engineering seven years or so. I said, I don't think I could do it anymore. And Tommy said, Al, it's like riding a bike. <laughs> so I said, so we made a pact that I would try it if I thought I wasn't doing well, I could back out. And if he thought I wasn't doing well, he could let me know and everything would be fine. And the record was alone together. And I was going to ask you about that one. And when I got on to start the mix alone together, I started, you know, when I started putting things together and, and adding little reverb things and so forth. And I realized this is this is what I got into this business for, to be an engineer, not a producer. You know, producing was great, but I love touching the board. And, you know, at RCA, when you were a producer, you couldn't touch the board. If you did, they turned you into the union. So you got <laughs> reprimanded. So I never touched the board. Um, and getting back into doing it, I realized this was my love. This is what I was meant to do. And so that was it. So alone together got me started. And then uh, Joe Wizard was doing Earth, Wind and & Fire and he asked me to do them. So I wound up doing the first two Earth, Wind & Fire records. And then, you know, Jackson Brown called me. And I did uh, For Every Man with him that I engineered. And then I co-produced Late for the Sky with him. And then Neil Young called me to do On the Beach. So yeah, my my career just started to take off. That's and, amazing. Uh, 
So when you were producing at RCA and you weren't engineering at all, I mean, did any of the people there know about your engineering background or did they not even Oh, care? yeah, they all did. But they, sure, because I was an engineer then. They yeah. are now all of a sudden I'm a producer. So now some of the guys, you know, that, that I was using as engineers were, you know, Hank Sakalo was one. My brother Richie uh, was another really good engineer. John Norman was an English English engineer, and they all knew my work. Yeah. And did but, it drive uh, you crazy? Oh, it did. Oh, absolutely. So for seven years, and, you're in the back of the room wanting to right. get in. By the time I would tell them what to do, it would be too late. So I'd reach right. over to do it. And then, especially John Norman, the English guy, he would get really pissed and turn me into the union all the time. And I was always getting reprimanded. So that, uh, you know, it was tough. So anyway, so that that's it up to the airplane when I left. That's amazing. Um, yeah. We should we should, we we have to go back and talk a little bit about the Henry Mancini stuff. Oh God, just it's my I mean, favorite. It, it and it's so iconic. It kind of, I mean, there yeah, there was other stuff sort of kind of like it, but not really, not really. I mean that that Atari soundtrack is just insane. There's so many things on there that if you don't know that movie you're like well maybe i don't know this music but no you do you know that music that was and that was all mono and two track and i gotta tell you yeah because it was that was it everything was done live and uh that was the most difficult record i ever did in my life and i had five percussionists and if you listen to the record you'll hear all oh, it was got log bass and and the big uh giant uh dried beans and stuff that Hank brought these instruments back from uh, from Africa when they were filming Hatari. And, uh, you know, uh, Shelly Mann played the kalimba on it. Uh, you know, it was, and I had bass flutes and I had trombones and French horns. I mean, it was like in five percussionists, all and all down mono and two track. And uh, yeah, it, it, you really had to know what you were doing. And how many mics are you up to for that record? Oh, boy, I don't know. That was probably, at that point, we probably had 16 inputs. Luxury. I think it was 16. Yeah. So, <laughs> but, you know, like on the bass flutes, I had two M49s, and I had them in the figure eight, and I had two of the bass flutes on, on one side, and, and the three of them on the other side, and they were right on the mic, you know, real tight. And that's you get that. You can hear it on the record. Yeah, all the breath and you know, yeah, just having and, five bass and the low drums and and the, the log bass. Oh yeah, it was it was. I mean, I'm telling you, when that was over, <laughs> working with Hank, you know, the first thing I did with Hank was the Peter Gunn record, um, and I did part of that. Bones Howe did part of it, um, and uh, but then when I got hired at Art, at, at, that was done at Radio Recorders. When I got hired at RCA, and Hank was uh, the artist there, I was the guy that uh, did, uh, you know, I think the first thing I did with him was Breakfast at Tiffany. And uh, what a great record that was, you know. Yeah. So uh, anyway, it was, it was, Hank was such a wonderful guy. Uh, he had a great sense of humor. Um, he, I'll tell you a little story about the kind of guy he was. Back in those days, Hank worked from 8 to 11 and we had full room full of musicians 8 to 11 
Well, the union rules were if you went over 11 o'clock, all the musicians got paid a half hour overtime. So we would be doing these sessions with Hank and we'd, we'd get a take and it would be about two minutes to 11 and it would be perfect. I'd say, oh, Hank, that's it. That was great, man. It was fantastic. And he'd say, no, no, no. I, there was a little something in the violas over here that I heard. We got to do one more. And we do one more take and we'd go that time over. And so all the musicians got a half hour overtime. And that was Hank's way of saying <laughs> thank you to the guys. And that's why the musicians loved working for him. That's why I loved working for him because he was such a kind guy and considerate and 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 just you know I mean I still to this day miss him. He he was the most fun to be in the studio with. And did you ever get anything magical on that extra take or no one was even really paying attention? Nah, it didn't matter. <laughs> Sometimes I would, you know, it was probably as good as maybe the take we did before, but certainly not anything more magical or anything. And nobody ever heard that little viola part or <laughs> no, of course not. flute part that wasn't quite right. So, yeah, no, it was just his way of saying thank you to everybody. That's amazing. Um, yeah. And I'm trying to kind of, keep somewhat organized but it's <laughs> impossible it's really hard um yeah so, well i mean you brought up tommy lapuma a couple of times and you have a really really long relationship with him making records you want to just kind oh, of make a walk through that and that'll cover a lot of ground wow what do you want to walk through uh, <laughs> uh you know uh, the, that was the first record i did with him and then then he started you know, he liked what I did and he started using me. We went one up doing Dan Hicks and the Hot Licks and, and uh, you know, a lot of the Blue Thumb records. And then Tommy went to Warner Brothers and I started doing, you know, a lot of the stuff with him at Warner Brothers. Uh, and we just, yeah, I got uh, our discography together is miles. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just so many great, great records. I'd have to have a list in front of me to to figure out which ones were some of my favorites. But well, all right, some... well, stuff will come up. Um, yeah. Well, let's because you already mentioned Neil Young, so let's yeah. let's talk a little bit about Neil Young because I'd be very curious because you then worked with him what thirty years later or thirty five yeah. years later, something like that. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that first record because it's in some ways it's really like starting him off you can hear where crazy horse is coming and all of that uh, on a few of those tracks and i'd love to hear a bit more about that record but then also coming back to work with him so much later yeah and to just have what that was like well working with him we did that on the beach was done at the sunset sound and one and i i had the room set up uh as a living room and with lamps and couch and and so forth and I'll, I'll never forget the, the guitar player. I can't remember his name. But when it came time for his solo, he would push the mic away. And I'd have to stop and go out and say, look, stop, don't do this, you know? And it happened two or three times. And finally, I convinced him to keep his hands off the mic and not move it. And we finally were getting things done. But we were on one uh, tape machine. I. I think it was 16 track or whatever, uh, two inch um, Ampex 
tape machine. I think it was Ampex, might have been 3M. But, um, and people from the record company or whatever would come over and want to hear what we were doing. So, and we had, you know, one, one take on, um, on one reel, another on another reel. So I had to keep changing reels and playing stuff back. So that's when we decided to make the rough mixes. So we made these rough mixes. So when people came onto a two track machine, so when people came, uh, we could just play that. We didn't have to keep changing reels and we could keep doing what we were doing. Um, anyway, when we finished the, uh, the record and, uh, and uh, I said to him, uh, well, Neil, when are we gonna mix? And he said, gee, I'll, uh, I love these rough mixes. I don't think I wanna mix. I said, oh, no, no, you gotta let me mix, please. No, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I said, look, I'll, I'll pay for it myself. <laughs> he said, Al, you can do whatever you want, but I'm using these rough mixes, period. <laughs> and that was the end of that argument. So that was it. And that's what's on there. Those are the rough mixes that we just threw together really quick. And it's you it's know? brilliant because you can hear, I mean, especially in the vocal sound, it's really varied throughout that record. And it's just like, <laughs> that's what was happening that day. And it's probably the kind of thing you would have evened out a little bit later on or whatever, but it's- of course. It's really, yeah. it's really effective as you right. go to the different songs. I'm trying to remember which one I put on the, the playlist. Um, did wow. I, I don't think I wrote it down, I but did, I don't remember them. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't matter. Um, but right. it's just then later on, you know, you want to talk about later with him. Um, uh, a year or two ago, uh, Nico Bolas is producing, and uh, and we we uh, he had a hundred pieces that he wanted to acquire and 65 piece orchestra and uh, where do you want to do it? And I said, Sony scoring stage would be the best place. So we, we, we go over there and we have 65 musicians, 35 voice choir, Neil standing right next to the piano player, singing everything live, all going down to, it went down to a multi-track, but it all went down to um, a half inch two track. And uh, and a lot of the three of the things were direct from the recording right to tape, um, and uh, and that was the great thing about Neil. It was all about the feel and everything else, and and uh, yeah, if he if that emotion kicked in, then that was it. Right. And uh, that was an exciting time, and uh, a lot of fun, and. Uh, and Neil was great to work with. Always was great to work with. And Nico, if you know Nico, oh yeah, I I just love. He's like my brother. Um, I I love being with Nico and working with him. We do a lot of stuff together. So, so it was fun. It was it was a great time. And and uh, and I I did a few albums with Neil, uh, four or five I think, and and they were all great. And Neil is still a dear friend. And and uh, Nico and I were having lunch. Uh, about a year ago, and uh, and he had talked to Neil earlier. Neil said, "Where are you guys?" And he came by and had lunch with us, and sat down, and we got to hang again. Then you know, renew old stories, and that's it was, great. Yeah, 
And he's he obviously and not that you know not that you invented it, but obviously it was a big part of making that first record with him. The idea of the the studio not being a studio, it's a living room because he's still yeah, doing yeah. that. I mean, the documentary on the the latest band record he made, the Crazy Horse record, in a room, monitors, super loud, yeah. like that's he just wants to be in a performance environment. Yeah, and that record yeah. has to come out of that. Yeah, Which would well, that that could take us to a Frank story the performance set up as opposed to the studio setup because when you're working with uh with frank with the big band when wasn't there going to be a vocal booth and he's like no no don't think so <laughs> yeah that's a funny thing we you know we had the band it was a 55 piece orchestra throw ramon um and i'll tell a little story before that uh i one of the magazines asked me if uh if i had any regrets and i said I have one regret. I never got to work with Sinatra. Well, three weeks later, the phone rings and it's Phil Ramone. How you doing, Al? Great. We chat and boom, 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 back and forth. He said, what's your schedule like? And so I get my book and I said, well, I'm free that time, three weeks. He said, oh, great. Mark it down. And he asked me my fee and I told him and he went, oh, that's a little. I said, well, that's what I get. He said, all right. That's great. So we chatted a little while longer before he hung up. I said, by the way, who's the artist? He said, Frank Sinatra. And I said, Frank Sinatra, why didn't you tell me? If you told me that in front, I would have done it for nothing. And then, but then he said, this is right, Phil. He said, well, if you'd asked for more, I would have given it to you. <laughs> so anyway, so that was it. So now the first day was set up, got the band, everything, you know, and look, running down charts and stuff and frank never shows up the next day he comes and uh he can't even talk and he said not tonight guys he was his voice was messed up then the third night he comes and and phil had in in the studio had built a booth a vocal booth with air conditioning and it had uh bottle of jack daniels it had tootsie rolls Camel cigarettes, all the things that Frank liked in the booth. And so we're standing, Frank and I, right in front of the trombones and trumpets. And and the saxes are to our left. And Frank looked at me with those blue eyes, you know, and he said, where do you want me, kid? And I said, I, I think in there. And he looked over at the booth and he looked at me and he said, I ain't going in there. I said, well, where do you want to be? He says, how about right here, right in front of the brass? I said, fine. I wasn't producing it. It was Phil's problem. So I said, fine, great. And he said, you know, I don't want to, uh, I want a handheld mic. So fine. We got a, a, a Vega, whatever handheld wireless microphone that he could use. And he stood right in front of the brass and sang. And he sang each song down. One time, the only time he would stop, he would count it off. And the only time he would stop if the tempo wasn't right. And then he'd stop it and we'd go back to, to the top again. But we did all those in one night. All wow. the songs and the duets, uh, the first duets album. So it was amazing, yeah. And, so and he, it was the thrill of my life, you know. And I got, you know, I got to have dinner with Frank three nights in a row. And that was amazing. pretty cool. Yeah, with a bunch of us sitting around telling stories. He was, he and this mafia don uh, that was at the table with us 
were telling stories about the old days and, uh, <laughs> with the mafia and stuff. I mean, we were all laughing, and I mean, it was just an amazing time. So, with the with the, the tempos, did he know the actual arrangements that were going to happen, or he just knew the songs and he knew he, how he, he knew was the songs play? and knew to count them off, yeah, and whatever, and that was it, yeah. And we and, had we had the strings in B and all the band and the big band of rhythm section in A, and uh, yeah, Pat Williams did the charts and and just amazing. It was just yeah. great. So, okay, that brings me to a, another question, because you've worked with, obviously, a million artists that we're going to get back to, but you've also worked with every arranger on the planet, basically. And I'm just curious, yeah. I don't want you to pick a favorite or anything like that, but like someone like Pat or just anything you, you wanted to say oh, about any oh, of these arrangers are so different, yeah, too. Klaus, Klaus Ogerman was one of the greatest of all. Uh, Johnny Mandel, was, you know, another... Uh, uh, I hired Nelson Riddle to do a, a record with uh, Eddie Fisher. Um, you know, so yeah, I, I worked with all the great ones and some of them were easy to get along with and some of them were a little more, more difficult, you know, so forth. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of a story right now and it's not quite coming to me. No, uh, that's all right. That's but I'll, just... I'll think of it at some point and and uh, I was doing Eddie Fisher record, and I can't think, trying to think of the arranger's name. And he was a great, great arranger. And uh, so he would run down the arrangement and uh, fix all the notes or whatever. And then he would say to me, Al, I got a headache. I'm going to go outside and let the concert master conduct. I said, fine. So that's what would happen. And we'd get that one tune done with Eddie Fisher. And then he would come in and do same thing on the next, you know, and then make whatever fixes and go outside. And finally, I went out and uh, and said to him, he was kind of laying on the couch. I said, what's going on with this? He said, oh, to be honest, I can't stand the way that fucker sings. <laughs> Ruining his arrangements. <laughs> yeah, that's it. He couldn't stand the way he sang, didn't want to be in there listening to him. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'll think of his name at some point. That's so it's funny. Great. I mean, because they, like now, you get somebody to do a string arrangement for an album, and it's, it's in a lot of cases on the records I work on, it's like the last thing you do, and maybe you've got the money. Yeah. In it, but it's it's an overdub. Whereas with those records, I mean, that's the record. That was all live. Yeah. So they've got as much input as the artist, but of course they're not the artist. So it's got to have been, it's, it's interesting, because I mean... You need, you'd think that you would have to have a certain kind of personality, but yes, yeah, some of those guys were serious. You know, they had their egos. Oh, yeah. They, oh, yes, absolutely. You didn't fuck with Nelson, I'll tell you. You know, <laughs> Nelson Riddle, he, he knew what he wanted and what was going to happen. And if you wanted some changes, uh, it, you had to really convince him uh, that you were heading in the right direction. Right. So, yeah. And they have such and other a... guys, you know, like working with Klaus was just a walk in the park. You know, one of my all-time favorite records that I've ever done is Gate of Dreams with Klaus Hogeman. And uh, I don't know if you've, anybody's ever listened to that, but that, that's an amazing record and uh, really beautiful. And then, of course, I did all those things with Diana Krall yeah. uh, with him. And 
uh, he, he was and I, I did a, a great record with Danilo Perez and him. Uh, I think it's Across the Golden Pond. I think the name of that album is. Uh, anyways, he was just amazing. And he would always, this is when I was drinking, he would always, he and I, we'd talk before, we'd go to a bar, we'd talk before, and he'd say, Al, let's have a glass of champagne and talk about this. And that was it. We'd each have a glass of champagne, and he would tell me what he was, what, and Tommy, little Puma, what he wanted to do. And uh, yeah, those were fun times. It's amazing. And the, yeah. each arranger really has their own sound. I mean, obviously they have a style in the writing things, but oh, you absolutely. Hear Listen, the string those... sections, you know, yeah. they just sound different with them. Did you Oh, ever... you could always, as an engineer, and I was doing, you know, at RCA, and I'd be doing, you know, one day, three days a day. And sometimes all three of them would have different string arrangements. And you could tell, like a Marty Page arrangement, where the strings would just sing or, or uh, you know, just beautiful. And then another arrangement, I won't mention, and, and everything sounded so small and tight. And, you know, and you think, is it me? Why can't I make this sound like, you know, yeah. Marty's string? But it's not. It was and in the arrangements. Same players in the same room on the same day. Right, exactly. Same thing. Yeah. yeah. So it's the way they voice things. and and do everything. I'm going to look at, I got 50, oh, I got 50, 55% left. All so right. I'm good. Well, I can I go mean, in and plug it in a little while. All right. Well, we'll, we'll see how you're doing. We'll keep you, going. Yeah. And if you get sick of me, just pretend the battery died oh, and hang up. Hey. No, <laughs> that'll never happen. Now. All know, right. I got, I got one, one of my favorites. Story. One more in, in that same sort of vein before we come back and talk about some other stuff. But let's talk about the Dylan records you made not that long oh, ago. Oh, wow. Because that's sort of the in the living room thing, but in a totally different way, in, in a way. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't want to see any microphones. He liked Studio B, but didn't want to sing any, see any microphones. So the way we set it up was uh, where... Like on the overhead of the drums, I used a, uh, a C24, you know, and that was it. But there was just brushes, so it wasn't much. And uh, the bass, I had the bass, one mic on the bass, down low and over to the side. So he would have to move his head over to see it. So if he was singing straight ahead, he couldn't see it. Then I had the rhythm guitar player on his left. And I had a ribbon mic on him. And he, at one point, he wanted to hear more of that. So we just moved the guy closer to him, to him so he could hear more. And then on the, the uh, electric guitar, I had the musician. And then behind him, I had his amp. And, and then I had the microphone between him and the amp. And so he couldn't see the mic at all. And the same thing on the on the steel guitar, the same thing. So the only mics he could see really was the 47 on his vocal, and I had the uh, an M49 in surround about two and a half feet, three feet away from him in the middle of the room just to get some ambience on that mic. And that was it. And uh, it was a joy. We did 52 songs overall for those three albums 
and uh, and it was a pleasure. You know, I really I got a hug from him, and uh, his manager Jeff uh, told me he never hugs anybody out, but he gave <laughs> I gave him a hug, and he kind of stiffened up, and uh, I thought, oh shit, I shouldn't have done that. But then he hugged me right back, and uh, that that was pretty cool. I felt good about that, and it was a fun time. We worked five days a week, and we worked from uh, three to six and eight to 11. And we would do one tune each session. And, um, and what he did was for the first two hours, he would go over the song and listen to the records that Sinatra did of that song or someone else and their interpretations. And he would learn them. The, the the true meaning of the song and kind of why it was even written and uh, and that was that was something that Sonata did all the time and I think that was something that he took from Frank and uh, and learned and then we would do maybe two or three takes and that would be it and then then we take a two hour lunch break or dinner break and then come back and same process all over with another song. Wow. It was it was amazing. It was really a lot of fun. And I really got to uh to like Bob a lot and and learn more about him and uh yeah, very interesting guy. He's very bright. And that's another one where you you did mix or you you didn't even bother mixing. Was it just the mixes from the day? No, 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 we mixed. We mixed. Oh, you did. That. Okay. And at one point, yeah. At one point at the end of one song yeah, at the end of a phrase or whatever, he went a little under, and I, I tuned it up a little bit, very little, tuned it up, and uh, we playing it back. And he came in and playing it back, and and that goes, and he looked at me and said, "What was that?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, you just were a little under, and I just brought it up." He said, "Put it back, Al." So I had to put it back the way it was. He just wanted it the way it was. Well, you know, it, you get a Nobel Prize, you do what you want. Yeah, no shit. You know what? <laughs> Hey, everybody knows. You know, whatever happened years ago, and all of every record I ever made with some of the greatest, we never had any tuning. No, no. People sang. And, you know, listen, Frank didn't sing. Or Frank went sharp every so often. Of course. But who cares? You know, it's all about the emotion and the feeling. And, and, and that's what I try to tell people. It's it's how how you relate to people with the song and God, if somebody who sits there and says, Oh, he's a little flat there. Or, oh, is that a little sharp? You know, only people who are nuts do that kind of stuff <laughs> or engineers who are wacky. Yeah. So, you know, I, I just, uh, I'm from that old school because everything was done at one time and, and that was it. And, you know, it, it, you captured the, the, the emotion of the song and, Moved on, and we but used to do four songs in three hours. When uh, we yeah. we would do albums for seventeen hundred dollars, <laughs> you know, a whole album, and it would be three sessions where we did four songs in each session. Yeah, and that's it. No, no remixing. You know, just putting it together and pause. You know, the, the spacing, and that was it. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, you know, obviously you're sensitive to it because out of the 52 songs, there was still one spot where you felt like it's actually going to take away from the experience if we leave yeah. this like this. You didn't do it 
because you know on a tuner yeah no I, it, it was because it, right. it must have drawn your ear and you felt like yeah, well these right, exactly. but, getting pulled but you know knowing bob and and whatever um i would be much i'd be aware of ever doing that again that's yeah. for sure <laughs> so, and again as i say i i i really enjoyed the time with bob he was really he's really bright and uh and he was great. We we had a good time. He came in the first time he heard his voice. He walked in the control room, the first take, and I I played played it back for him. And he looked at me and he said, "Al, my voice hasn't sounded this good in forty years." So I said, "Wow, that's a compliment. <laughs> I'll take that one." Yes, absolutely, absolutely good. And and again, just fantastic sounding records. And it's the kind of thing where. I, I feel like if I tried to make a record with those sorts of mic techniques that far away and in Omni, I would just be in a sea of noise. I'd feel like I couldn't hear a thing. And when you do it, it's just natural and open and beautiful. Yeah. And amazing. Well, thank you. Um, yeah. All right. So my friend Damon said that we should spend two hours just talking about Asia. So oh, God. Well, <laughs> we're not going to do know, that, but but we got to get to that because it's also interesting in that. And there, there are a lot of records where you weren't the only engineer, but obviously right. on that record, you've got Elliot, you've got Roger, you've got a right. lot of people involved. Bill Schnee. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. No, so, no, no, no. I, let, let's hear I, about that. Okay. So I get a call from Gary Katz. I was working a lot at uh, Almond Steiner's studio, uh, Sound Labs. And uh, I get a call and they want me to mix a song. It's great, I'm available. So I, they, bring, they bring a bunch of 1176s, compressors in, I, I don't know, four or five of them or whatever. And they bring the tape into this tune and they leave it and they go, they leave. So I, uh, it's Peg. So I, on the board, no, there was no automation in those days on the board. It was a quad eight board and a great sounding board. And uh, so I'm messing around. I get a mix and, you know, put everything up and I get it really sounded. I thought it sounded really nice. And I turned the monitor off and I hit play. And I'm watching the meters, watching the, the two track meters and everything else and kind of just looking like that. Little did I know that the three of them walked in the control room who was standing be behind me. And then I turned the monitor up, you know, and I have no idea they're there. And then I, I got my mix that I got up on peg. <laughs> and Gary Katz to this day still says, Al Schmidt can mix a record just by looking at the VU me. He said, <laughs> I couldn't believe how great it sounded when he turned it up. So anyway, <laughs> So now we get the mixing and we all have a part. Um, Roger wasn't involved in that, I don't think, at that time. It was me uh, and uh, and the two guys from Steely Dan and and, uh, and Gary Katz. And so uh, we all had a part to play. So it took 12 hours to mix that song because every time either I would get it right uh, Gary would say, oh, I didn't get the echo right there. Um, then it would be, uh, we do another take and then uh, somebody else would make a mistake. So it never got uh, to the point, it took almost 12 hours to the point where 
everybody got it right at one time. And that's the mix you have of Peg at this point. And uh, so that, that was great. And uh, then they, they I, I did uh, Deacon Blues, but that was a little later. And, and before that, I did FM. After Peg, I did FM, no static at all. And Johnny Mandel did the uh, string arrangements, and we did the strings at Capitol. And uh, and I remember uh, Mandel uh, wondering, do these guys really know what they're doing? I said, yeah, they do. They know exactly what they're doing. <laughs> so, and it was great. And, and that was, we won a Grammy for that, Roger and I won a Grammy for that single for best recorded record. And that was the last time they ever allowed it for a single. Really? From now on, it had to be an album. <laughs> Excuse me. Wow. So, um, yeah, you know, it was great. And, uh, you know, I'm still really close friends with Gary. I just yeah. talked to him a couple of days ago. And, and we're all staying in touch. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it, it was really fun. I bring the tracks of uh, Peg whenever I teach anywhere, and uh, and I let all the uh, engineers have their shot at mixing it. So, and it's really fun to watch and see how some guys come up with some pretty good mixes and, and others not so hot. You know, when I do mix with the masters, it's yeah. a big favorite. The guys love it. I'm you know, sure. I did well, I mean, meticulously recorded too, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. Now, yeah. were those mixes as simple as your, you know, you no no EQ, tiny bit of compression, that's it? Were were the Steely Dan mixes that simple as well? And it's really just balance panning. Echo, yeah, yeah. No, that was not not a lot of EQ that I can even remember. And and I don't think I used any of the 1176s at all. Uh, on it, as far as compression was concerned, so uh, they were they were happy with the way it was coming. So you know, nobody said, "Hey, we should compress this or or do right. do that." And, you know, that, that, that didn't happen. Well, okay. So staying in that vein, we should probably talk about Toto for a second. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorites. Well, I mean, off you go because it's. It's a fantastic yeah. sounding record musically, and obviously, some of those songs yeah. have stuck around, never gone away. Right. And and you didn't just mix that, right? I mean, you were all the way through on. No, no, I didn't mix no. it. I, no. I recorded recorded it everything on it. Uh, uh, Greg Ladani mixed it. And were you co-producing? I should know this. No, but, no, no, no. I just, just recorded. Right. What had happened was I was doing a lot of work. Um, we, we did, Tommy and I, like about 12 albums in a row. Um, and Jeff Picaro was the drama on all the records. And uh, so they were getting ready to do Toto 4. And evidently they had some problems with the engineer who was demanding a lot of stuff or whatever. And, and anyway, so... Jeff said, hey, I've been working with Al, man, and he gets some really good drum sounds, so uh, why don't we get Al? So they called me, and I, sure. So I was recording an English girl singer during the day, which Stu Levine was producing, and 
and then I would finish at six and 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 that was at sound sound labs and then I would leave them and go over to uh Sunset Sound and uh and get ready to do uh total four. So what had happened was I had everybody set up and they were running things down and and at, at one point uh David Page said, when is Al gonna get some drum sounds, get some sounds? And I said, I I, I got it. It's sounding good. Come on in and listen. So they came in and listened and turned the volume up and and it was the second take of Rosanna. And uh I mean they just looked at one another, looked at me and and everybody just smiled. I it sounded awesome, you know, and uh so that was it. We were off and running. So, Amazing. Yeah, so then I, you know, I did all the tracking. Um, most of the, the overdubs, a couple other engineers did a, a, an overdub here and there. I did all the horn overdubs uh, with Jerry Hay. Uh, yeah, that was a fun record, man. And Prince was in the other room. Right, yeah, the one across the had basketball court out, and he would, my son, Chris, was with me at the time. It was a summer and he was staying with me and he would go out and shoot baskets and and he uh he was about as big as Prince and Prince and he would shoot baskets and they never spoke. And finally one day <laughs> one day Chris came in and we were all in the control room and Chris said, Hey, did that that man talked to me. I said, Yeah, really what do you say? He said, Nice shot, kid. <laughs> he had done, definitely done a nice a nice shot basket shot. For, so for- for people who don't yeah. know, the courtyard at Sunset was the best horse court in yeah. L.A., maybe know, in yeah. the world. Right. Well, well, back in those days, this is when a lot of cocaine was going on and all. We would, they, would, they would shoot baskets to see who paid for the blow. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was a lot of that going on. But, but hey, look, man, that record is... When I first heard the mix on the air that Greg did, I was in my car. I had to pull over. I mean, I was, it just sounded awesome. Yeah. The horns, everything. It just, it was everything I dreamed it should sound like. And Greg did a great, God bless him, we miss him. He did a great job. Now, when you're, when you're in that position where you've engineered a record like that, and you, I mean, you got to know, especially with a band like that, that had a bit of momentum anyway, that this is going to be a big deal. Did you want to mix it? Or it just like that wasn't happening, was no big deal? And off no, I don't think I couldn't mix it at that time. I forget. I think I, I was on my way over to Montreux for the jazz, Montreux Jazz Festival or something. Uh, and then, and, and uh, Greg was good friends with them. And, and uh, I would have liked to have mixed it, but nobody asked me, and so and I didn't push it at all. So, so yeah. But hey, I'm I'm happy the way it came out. A friend oh, of yeah. mine, a friend of mine said to me, "Hey, I want to go to the Grammys. Let me know next time you think you got something that's going to be nominated for the Grammys." When when I did Rosanna, I called my friend up and I said, "Get your tickets ready. This is going to win her Grammy." <laughs> And I did, man. I mean, it, uh, yeah, it was, a, yeah, great. And well, well deserved. Yeah, that Definitely. was cool. Yeah. Um, God, all right. I'm taking up a lot of your time, but there's still. All okay. right, I'm. I got. I'm out I want a beautiful garden. Yeah, you are, and you have seen some hummingbirds back there. It's yeah, yeah, right. 
So I got two things still written down, and then I want to talk about a little bit about your playlist, just because there's some really interesting stuff on there. Um, so you have a star on the Walk of Fame, right outside yeah. Capitol Studios. Yeah. I just have to mention, I mean, you don't even have to talk about it, but I have to mention that because that's <laughs> the most badass thing in the world. I know, When I was told about it, I was told I couldn't tell anybody, not even my wife. And, uh, but I did tell her. <laughs> but I told her she had to be state secret about it. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. I said, "Holy, gee, this is insane! Why, why me? You know?" And uh, anyway, uh, I'm I'm happy that it's there. Paula Salvatore and all the people at Capitol that 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 helped in the process. And uh, yeah, uh, it's great. And uh, every so often, you know, there's a great picture of. Uh, Steve Jenowick out there with a toothbrush. Yeah. <laughs> That's really funny, you know? Yeah, Steve was like, you know, really my assistant on on so many of the records we did at Capitol. And, and God bless him. He's, he's an amazing, uh, amazing guy. Yeah, but somebody's got to keep that thing clean. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I know. Yeah, there were a few times when I went out there and it didn't look so good. <laughs> so, you know, Paul, Paul Steve... Right. Don't yeah. get to work. <laughs> get the toothbrush. Right. Yeah, that, that's, uh, I'm the only guy so far. But, you know, I know George Massenberg called me and said, hopefully, Al, this will open up the gates and we'll get other people. And, and I said, yeah, I hope so. That certainly, uh, you know, other guys that deserve to be out here. And uh, But so far, nothing. You know, I think it's very expensive to do. Yeah. I didn't have to pay any anything but i think it is expensive yeah i mean i think so, it's a chamber of commerce raising money sort of thing yeah well. yeah but you know you don't get one unless you deserve it and then yeah, they charge well, you a bunch of money yeah <laughs> exactly yeah. so all right let's move on just a little bit about your your playlist and then we should take a couple of questions from sure. the the people who are, who are watching this but is anybody watching you know yeah well you know what and the way we're watching it i don't know usually i get a little count in the corner i have a feeling there are quite a few people watching this oh how cool yeah nice. so in your okay one last thing in the stuff you've worked on that i didn't realize you'd done for some reason you did a Zhao Gilberto record which oh amoroso yeah oh which, one of my for favorites. some reason that flew past me in my life i hadn't even listened yeah. to it until today Oh my God, that's a great record. You know how we did that record? We went to a little studio in New York called Rosebud. And uh, and Joao played guitar and sang. And Grady Tate, the drummer, just played on his thighs. He kept time playing on his thighs. So then we we did all the songs in like a day or two there. Then we took... Grady off, and we just had Joao and the guitar. We came to Capitol, and we added uh, drums and bass. Jim Hewitt on bass and Joe Carrero on drums. Uh, so then we had like him and Joao on guitar. We had the rhythm section and his vocals. Then Klaus Ogerman added all the orchestrations, and, and we mixed it at, at Capitol. And uh, yeah, it was a great record. It was a fun, funny record. He called me, Joao called me. He's kind of a little temperamental guy. He called me, he woke me up at three o'clock in the morning one morning, wanting to know 
if I thought there was too much bass on one song. And I had three in the morning and I said, I'll, I'll let you know when I wake up and I hung up the phone. <laughs> I never bothered calling him back. But the way it was, it was, it was fine. Anyway, yeah, uh, that, that was a great record. I love that record. I also did, I did an Amoroso tribute with all the songs with Rosa Passos, a Brazilian artist. That is wow. really amazing that George Calandrelli did the, uh, the charts on and, and produced. And uh, yeah, that, that's a great record too. Excellent. Well, that, that's going on my list. So in your your inspiration list, and these are really hard for people, and it's t I get why it's so hard, but it's just to get an idea. And yeah. there's some things that you, you sort of expect to see. There are a couple of uh, Sinatra things, like the Sinatra and Basie, Live in the Copa Room, and some really fantastic records. But there, there was one where you said almost anything Glyn Johns did. And so I decided, well, okay, what, what am I going to pick? I'm not going to go Zeppelin because, first of all, it's really well known. But so I picked a, a track off a Fairport Convention record that he produced. And it was one, the last one was Sandy Denny singing only because sonically it felt like this would be something that would make sense in your world. But I'm curious, like when you think of Glenn John's work, like which records are, are you thinking of? Oh, my God. I, you know, I... I can't do just about any of them. There were so many great records. And Glenn and I, you know, we, we, we became really friends over the years. And whenever I'd go to, to uh, London to work or whatever, he'd always call me. We'd try to get together. And and, I, and I'm just, you know, I, there isn't anything I can pick out. Um, any record of his that I play, uh, everything's in the right place. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's just amazing. So there was so many, and I just I didn't want to start picking out one yeah. or two or three. And no, I think so it's fine. And what was really interesting going through a bunch of them, sort of back to back to back today, is like people make such a big deal out of the drum technique, right? The over and the side and the kick, but. I mean, it's what he did, and you can hear it on that Fairport record. And it's like, yes. oh, well, that's exactly the spread of the Zeppelin drums, but in a completely different setting, in a much more natural, open kind of thing. Right. And it's incredible how well it works in yeah. a setting where you'd think like, well, no, 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 I want a picture of the drums. And you don't. Stuff's moving all over the yeah. place, but it's great. Yeah. I've never tried it myself, to be honest with you, to do it that way. Um, I, I'm always... I just have my way of doing it. And yeah. that's what I, I've so, tried it um, about 30 times and it's worked twice. And the, the couple oh, yeah. of times it worked, it turned out yeah. it was so much more about the way the drummer was playing on that song. Right. And I it worked was great. On, but. I worked on one record, uh, Barbara Streisand record, with, uh, that uh, David Foster produced. And he hired me to record the orchestra and Schnee to record the rhythm section <laughs> all at the same time. Wow. And Schnee, Schnee did the uh, the three mic drums thing there. And, and was it, that on it, JR? Uh, gee, I, yeah, I, probably. I, I don't remember who the drummer was, but I think it yeah. was JR. But yeah. but it sounded great. You know, Bill was an amazing engineer. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Absolutely. So so two other things from that list. What You said anything Miles Davis recorded. So I just, I put on So What from Kind of Blue because oh, yeah. you have to. Yeah. But I'm wondering... 
with because i am a gigantic miles fan and i stuck with it all the way through but i'm curious like did he ever lose you are there any records where you're like well i'm not i'm not getting that or were you hardcore whatever miles did was gold no 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 i didn't like everything he did um but most you know sketches of spain or you know uh, all blue uh, those records were you know they they were there were records that I listened to all the time. I would only play vinyl in my house, and and I had a stack of Miles records there, and Miles was on all the time. Um, yeah, I he I don't know if everything he did is I don't think anybody can say everything I did was great um, because that's not true. No, you know, I hear a record every so often, and I did, and and I kind of cringe a little bit. That oh my god, why did I do that, or why didn't I fix that, or why didn't I do you know that kind of stuff? So, um, and Miles, you know, I worked on the uh, Tutu record uh, with him, and uh, a little bit I did some of the percussion and stuff with him, and and uh, and he was quite, quite cool. You never spoke to Miles. He spoke to you, and then you could answer to talk. Otherwise, you know, at one point I know uh, one engineer, and I won't mention his name, uh, started telling Miles how great he thought Miles was. And Miles just looked at him and said, shut the fuck up, <laughs> you know? So he just didn't want to hear it. And all so, the stories are like that, but I've got to say there's – I'm a big fan of like the original issues of these records. And when you listen online, you're always hearing remastered and like, you don't know what you're hearing, but some of the amazing stuff that's being included on a lot of the digital reissues now are the, it's like, I think they call it like the studio progression. And there's one for Miles Smiles, um, which is one of my favorite of his yeah. records. Right. And there's, uh, so Footprints or no, Freedom Jazz Dance. And what you hear are the early takes that are all false starts and it's oh. nothing like what's on the record. And then you hear Miles talking to the band and you realize that, yeah, he was talking like that to engineers. He's talking like that to other people, unfortunately, yeah. perhaps his wives, whatever. But with the musicians, it is the most amazing, personable and sensitive sort of way to guide people into what it was going to be and by the fourth take everything just snaps into focus musically yeah. and it's from all the little tiny things he would say but never in that kind of how everybody thinks miles was to everybody well it's andrew how about that band you know you're talking about philly joe you're talking about paul chambers winton kelly yeah. um uh, coltrane yeah, yeah god i mean I remember they came out here and played at a club um, called The Cloister in California and uh, many, many years ago. And he was there for four nights. And I went every night. But the first night I went, the band was on. Miles came out. He played one note and he gave this look to Philly Joe that would have frozen somebody and he turned around and walked off stage and never came back it was okay because we had Coltrane and we had you know uh, the great this great band but uh, then the following night evidently Philly 
counted the temple wall from him or something, because you know, <laughs> nobody really knew why he walked off. But that was it. He played one note and turned around and walked off. And then the next three nights, and I went every night, um, he was out there. And, and man, to hear that band together, God, uh, unbelievable. I can't even imagine. I know. It was one of my thrills. And, uh, you know, Miles was always one of my heroes so, as a player, a musician. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah okay. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Um, so, all right, there's one other thing on your, your inspiration list that I got to just want to hear your thoughts on The Wall. The which? The Wall. The Wall? Yeah. Oh. Because that's wow. on the list, and I want to make sure. Yeah, I, I know right it's on, on the there. list. I know it's on the list, and I'm I'm trying to think of why I put it on the list. Because um, I remember that record, what a, an influence that record had on me at the time it came out. But uh, I'm drawing a blank right That's now. That's fine. I mean, I was just curious, only because you know, genre-wise, obviously, it's it's somewhere different from a lot of the list. But but yeah. it is. It's also it. It kind of, I mean, if you just want to analyze it from an engineering standpoint, it's not that far off from what you would do. It isn't like it's so powerful in places, but not because it's distorted, not because yeah. there's things that are loud. There's so much space on that record. It's insane yeah. and kind of I unheard of for that. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I picked it, I think, uh, is because of that. There's just a place for everything, you know, and everything has its place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I put Comfortably Numb on the playlist because that's a song. Oh, but, yeah. <laughs> hurricane time. Well, look, before nice. before you blow away and before your battery dies, let's bring Mark back on and get some questions okay. from other people because I've been monopolizing you big time. Okay, I still have 30-some percent left. So, All right. So we're good. Awesome. All right, great. Can I show you one picture of my yard? Yes. Wow. Nice. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's getting dark here. Or I'd show you a little bit around here. But <laughs> yeah, I know. And one of these days, I would love to come over and visit you and Chad. Anytime. Anytime. You know, I just, I love Chad too, man. He's he's such a cool guy. So yeah. Well, we'll get you out here. We'll go to the pub. I know. You two guys together, man. How cool is that? That's great. All awesome. right. Well, who's next? Come on. Bring them on. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's the story. I told that story yeah. just a little while ago with Steely Dan on Peg. That's how, uh, yeah, they, Gary Katz still talks about that, about, yeah, I can mix just by watching the VU music. But you're just like waiting for them to show up, basically. It's exactly. Like <laughs> I had gotten a mix that I thought was nice and and uh, finished, and, and then I turned the monitor off, and, you know, I was just watching the meters, watching my v, two VU meters, and, uh, you know, just kind of keeping an eye on what was going on. And uh, and that was it. And then I turned up the monitor and my mix is pretty good mix was there. And they, they were blown away. But Gary, more than anybody, Gary couldn't believe it. Oh, he, he loves that story. People. Yeah, yeah. Mm. <laughs> That's that story. What else? Nice. Nice. Okay. Uh, so John asks, when miking an instrument, how do you approach fixing any issues in the sound by only adjusting the mic? For example, 
If there is too much harshness in the mids on an instrument, what kind of adjustment would you make? I'm sorry, I missed the last part of that. Oh, uh, if it's harsh. Yeah. What? If if it's harsh, if it's... Uh, what kind of adjustment would you make with the microphone? What instrument are we talking about now? Oh, so uh, he's saying when miking an instrument, so kind of any instrument, he's saying how oh, do you okay. approach Well, okay, the first thing you want to do is go out in the room and listen to the instrument. You got to make sure that you know what the fucking thing sounds like, um, yeah. you know, before you go in and start opening mics, you know. And uh, and then if it's an instrument you've never seen before, talk to the musician, say to him, you know, I'm not sure. He, he, he'll tell you, well, last time they put the mic over here, and that, that sounded pretty good. So now you have a place to start. And Tommy Dow taught me, you know, listen, put the mic where you think it should be, go in, listen. If you're not happy, you're not hearing the same, go out, adjust the microphone, and, and get it until it's it's what you want. You yeah. know, and uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's important to, when I'm doing an orchestra, I stand with the conductor and listen to that first rundown, what's going on, so I know what's happening. And then I go in and I know what I have to capture in, in there. Um, it's, it's always good to um, to listen to what they're doing, you know, and what they're playing. Run inside, open your mics, make sure you got, if it's not sounding the way it is out there, go back out and readjust microphones. Don't start adding a bunch of EQ. Because that's, you know, you start adding EQ on this and EQ on that, and then you wind up with phasing problems. And, and, and that's what bothers me about a lot of records is that there's just so much EQ on shit uh, that it loses the, the, the natural sound of the instrument. And, uh, and that's what I try to capture. And you yeah. use a lot of microphones in figure eight and Omni as well. I used them mostly Omni. I, I, yeah. and the reason being is I love, I, I love to capture the leakage. And if you got a good microphone, and you're getting leakage, you're getting good leakage, and it makes things sound gives depth and 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 even height to things. Uh, if you're using cheap microphones, then you want to stay away from leakage because the cheap leakage, all that does is causing you all kinds of problems. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's important to, uh, I, on, when I'm doing saxophones, the mics are all in Omni. Uh, trumpets all in Omni. Um, trombones, I use, I use Royal microphones, the ribbon mics on, on trombones, and those are binaural, so you pick up some, some leakers that way. But yeah, I, 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 I embrace the leakage in the room. Um, that's important to me. That capture that. I want to be able to hear it and and make it feel like I'm standing in the middle of the room, like I'm hearing everybody. I'm right there. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Uh, so next question. This one comes from Jacob, and Jacob asks, "What reverb would you use on vocals if you could not use chamber four? What reverb I use <laughs> on vocals? Well, I have a favorite. Uh, Live chamber at Capitol, uh, mm -hmm. ch chamber four, yeah. live chamber. And I use that and I use my Bricasti. And uh, and I, it's a blend of the two always. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, uh, 
I just, it takes a while for me to get it right, but when I, you know, I'll have the vocal playing, I'll add the live chamber, then I'll add a little of Cassidy, and then a little more Picasso, a little less live chamber. And I screw around with it, and until a bell goes off in my head, I get like a ding, and and then I I, I got, got it where I want it. And then that's pretty much where I leave it. Yeah. And if you're not using the chamber, what is there anything you'd use alongside the Bricasti to do that, or you're just always using the chamber? I'm always using the chamber when I can, and I'm blessed that I, that I have that to use. But but if not, there, you know, I have a, I have an M6000. Uh, I have a lot of uh, reverbs that I can use. Um, you know, for people that don't have a chamber, if you have a Bricasti, that's great. You could use a Bacasti and and maybe a, a, a blend of a Bacasti and a, and a 280 would work well. And I've done that before at places that didn't have a, and I was mixing, didn't have a lot change. So it's always, it's always a blend though. You don't feel like you can yeah, it's get pretty it much out of always one reverb. Blend. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I don't just use the live chamber by itself. I, mean, I, I think I have on occasion, but most of the time it's, I get this great sound with the live chamber and then, then I just add something that gives a little bit more than than I get from just a chamber. Right. Mm. And do you have a favorite program on the Bricasti or the 280? Uh, not really. I think we keep it set pretty much at one point. So I'm not. I'm not sure, I'm sure what. Steve, Steve can type it in the chat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, cool. Steve would let anybody know. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Uh, the next one comes from Midge and he says, Mr. Schmidt, you've been around the industry for a while. So you've seen the evolution of the way people listen to music from 78 RPM vinyls on turntables to numeric music and earbuds. I'd like to know if your way of pre-visualizing your mixes has evolved with all those different kinds of music supports to achieve <laughs> what the audience is expecting. So have you changed the way that you right. mix as the formats change? Uh, no, I haven't. <clears throat> I try to mix exactly the same way and and um, the way I I just get it to sound good to me and um, and I think that uh, that should be good enough for anybody else and uh, hopefully uh, they'll like it you know um, so far you know I've been pretty successful doing that so yeah I use I think I have good taste in in balances and you know how much bass and drums and guitars and and strings and brass or whatever. Uh, I think I know how to place things, uh, you know, growing up, going to shows all the time, watching big bands live, uh, you know, that kind of thing. I just, I just learned good balances and, and, and how music I think should sound. And that's what I try to do. So I want to get in one more question because it's one I was sure. going to ask and then I thought maybe not, but I do want to ask this because you've worked with basically everybody on the planet, but is there anybody like, let's, let's pull a Frank Sinatra out of the hat right now. Is there anybody living you haven't worked with that you still want to? Yes. Sade. There you go. Your I phone should be ringing. I, I put yes. that out. Uh, I put that out a few times. I love her voice. I, I just yeah. love the sound of her voice. I think I could make a great record with her. I think, I, but that would be, I mean, if I had one request, that would be it right now. Wow. Mm. So call me Sade. <laughs> right. 
I got to make a couple records with Robin Millar, who obviously was her guitar player and then produced the, I think he may have produced the second or maybe the first and second, but yeah, and the, the, you guys would do well together. The attention to detail. Oh yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Cool. yeah, We'll we'll get on the phone to her. We'll find her. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That'd be great. Yeah. Once we can get rid of this fucking pandemic and we can all go back to living our natural lives. Yeah. So, Anything well, else? Any other questions? Come on. Well, uh, <laughs> let's uh, let's do one more. Let me see here. So, um, okay. So, one from uh, Zachary Miller. He says, "Hey Al, you're known for EQing with mic placement. How important is the room with this in mind? And what would you suggest to folks who are recording in maybe not so ideal rooms?" Uh, I'm a huge fan of your workmate. Thanks in advance, Zach. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. What? Can you repeat yeah, that again? Really saying, sure, basically, sure. you get your sound with your with your microphones and your mic placement, mm-hmm. but obviously, then the room plays a huge part in that. So, what what's your advice for people who are working in rooms that are not necessarily that great? Wow. Um, well, I would, you know, if I'm working in a room, and I, I maybe would have some ambient ambient mics around to, to and see how much of a the better parts of the room, you can capture some of the sounds. Uh, yeah, it's pretty tough. Um, I can't remember the last time that I had to work in a room that was not not a really good room. So uh, it's hard well, for me. Well, that's the answer. Just work in a better room. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As um, much as you I'm... can. But uh, yeah, you know, just do the best you can. You know, move microphones around. Try Omni. In, in, in certain aspects to see what if you can get some reflection off things to make it sound more depth, uh, you know, more 3D, so to speak. Yeah, yeah I, I would try, I mean, try I, things. Yeah, and I think if if you're in a really subpar room, but that's that's what you've got to do, which is the situation for a lot of people, then, I mean, what I've found is really just try and deaden the room and take the room out of the equation. Just deal with the fact you're going to have to get a less open natural sound out of it and know that with things like Bricastes and all the impulse response reverbs and things, you can recreate rooms around right. drier recordings much easier than you can around a bad room you're recording. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And uh, but I've I've been blessed. I haven't had to work in a bad room in a long time, so uh, I, I haven't had that problem really to yeah. deal with. So, but I would okay. do what you just yeah. said. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, Great. Cool. Yeah. Anything well, else? I think we're we're at the two yeah. hour mark. So yeah, I think we're good. Oh my god! Wow, right. that went fast, didn't it? I I knew it would. I was worried yeah. like. We Can we do another summer. two hours? Is that possible? <laughs> yeah, I might need a nap first, but <laughs> yeah, I know we... that's right. In your time, well, I'm, yeah, and I'm ready for lunch. I think so. Uh... <laughs> that's a good but, call. But hey, you know, awesome. thanks so much for this. Um, I'm kidding. Oh, thank you so much for doing out. this, Al. It's yeah. this is uh, I hope it came awesome. out. I hope everybody got what they wanted, and uh, you know where to find me if you need any more. Yeah, yeah. Well. Yes. Definitely. Um, and I'm hoping. To, I'm hoping we're going to get to talk to Nico at some point too, because oh, that great. Would be that would be fabulous. And we'll ask him to yeah. talk about you. <laughs> I talked to him this morning, and uh, he's doing great. Um, Excellent. Anyway, um, good luck, guys, and have a good one. And uh, awesome. Call me if you need anything. I'm Absolutely. around. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so uh, much, right. Al. 
Al, before okay. you run, I, uh, I want to let you know um, we had a couple thousand people tuned in. And uh, what? a couple thousand people tuned in across all the platforms. And uh, just on behalf of everybody, I want to say thank you for all of your contributions, all of the amazing music and everything that you've done for it, uh, for the recording industry as a whole. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I thought that'd be maybe life. 10 people, you know? <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> no, no, months, so. no. I mean, yep. look, look, your records alone is a legacy that is just incredible and in the inspiration things. But the fact that you're such an amazing person and you don't mind talking about it and you're yeah. humble and it's just, it's just such a joy to hear the stories and to someone who was there, you know? Oh, and it, it's amazing. Yeah, uh, thank you. All yeah, right, guys, guys. Well, enjoy whatever you're doing now, and uh, awesome. I'm gonna have lunch and nice. Get some. Get you got time for bedtime for you, right? No, I no, mean, it's beer, beer o'clock. Oh, okay. Oh, <laughs> awesome. okay. There you go. Well, enjoy it. All right. All right. And if you see Chad, tell him I said hello. Yeah, I will. I'm probably gonna talk to him tomorrow. I'll definitely tell him you okay. said hey. Yeah, give my best. All right. I love you guys. All right. Thank Thanks you. So much. Thanks, Al. Thanks, Al. I'm Bye. tuning out. Okay. <laughs> and uh, guys, just as a wrap up, tomorrow we're going to be back with Between Two Beards with uh, Vance Powell and Reed Shippen, and they're going to be interviewing Ryan Hewitt. So it's going to be a fun one tomorrow. And next week here, uh, we've got Tim Palmer. And if you don't know who he is, Amazing. you got to look him up because he's done a lot of stuff, including Pearl Jam 10 and Now and Zen, the first Robert Plant solo record, et cetera, nice. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Amazing. You really set the bar low with these things, Andrew. Yeah, I know. I believe me, I do a lot of panicking over the weekend while I'm researching. Awesome. Well, thank you for doing the show and everything, and we'll see everybody next time. Excellent. Thanks, Mark. All right. See thanks. ya. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. It is such a pleasure to listen to Al tell his stories of a career that is unmatched and unparalleled. Thanks so much for listening, and next week will be my conversation with Tim Palmer. <laughs>